0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radical Civility. My name is Ben Piccini, and this is a project of Public Square Magazine. Today, we're going to be talking with Tom Stringham, who has this great substack where he's writing a little bit more about culture and especially Latter-day Saint culture. Um, One of the things that is a little bit hard about right now and, and recording podcast episodes is that there's horrible things going on in the world. And with Russia and Ukraine and everything, it almost feels irreverent to talk about anything else at the same time there are always terrible things going on and we try our best to take the ones where we can make a difference and do some good so please know that i am aware and in fact uh, would like to get a panel together um, in time to say something meaningful about ukraine and russia and put forward something good Um, i I pray that by the time we get that together it'll all be done and taken care of and resolved Um, but know that my heart is after that issue and it's gripped me particularly strongly. Um, And so if there's a way that we can, I would really like to um, see if we can speak to that. But for now, life moves on. And there are other things to talk about. Um, But we will try and come back to that another time. So for now, um, let me introduce you to Tom Stringham and uh, and we'll go from there. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this, my name is Ben Pacini, and this is Radical Civility, a project of Public Square Magazine. Um, and tonight, I am joined by Megan Kohler and Tom Stringham. So uh, before we get started, Tom, do you want to introduce yourself just a little bit and talk about um, a little bit about what, what your interests are and, and your background?
1: Um, yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so my name is Tom Stringham. I'm uh, a graduate student in economics up here in Toronto and uh i am married with three little kids and i i have been writing as of the last month or so uh on a new sort of blog um uh, stringham.substack.com i i used to write i used to have a blog way back when but then stopped writing for a while uh now i'm back at it and uh seems like there's an audience uh, somewhat for for some of the things i'm saying and so i'm happy to be able to 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 chat about it tonight
0: well, fantastic! I think that's exactly right. I think you've you've written two um, Substack articles that I've seen, and I've enjoyed them both immensely. Um, I sent a, sent one to a few of my students who who like to read interesting writing, and there there was this, this great debate. They're like, "Wait a minute, hold on, we got it!" <laughs> it was great. It was wonderful. That's that's the sign of good writing is that it, that you know everybody wants to talk about it. So, um, why don't we wanted to talk specifically about your last piece, which was about How LDS Sexual Ethics Work, I think is what the title is, or something close to that. Why don't you give us a quick rundown of that, and then Megan and I have a couple of questions we wanted to ask you.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the the idea of the article is that, um, well, it's a specific uh, way that our sexual ethics work. So my argument is sort of that the the sexual revolution was really bad for women in particular in in a specific way. I relate this story, it's a true story, uh, an overheard conversation in the university library where this young man is telling two or three young women that he knows, friends, about this girl who's been texting him, hitting him up, as he puts it. Uh, he's, he's saying, we only did it for three days. And he's saying, how awkward this is, and the girls are agreeing, that's, that's so cringe. And he's saying, yeah, she's really mad because I, I was her first i took her virginity and uh he's just he's treating it so casually and what surprised me wasn't so much that that it happened because uh, you know this this does unfortunately happen a lot in college these sorts of um bad relationships but the fact that uh his female friends just nodded along and sort of uh, agreed or appeared to agree with him that yeah women just shouldn't expect anything from men uh who just want sex they should just you know go along with it and then not expect any affection or commitment or anything at all and and uh that's it's cringe if you do And you should just realize that that just give men what they want and then move along and so what this made me think was um it's a thought i've had before but just how powerless women are in secular dating culture these days in particular powerless to um, induce men to enter into committed relationships with them and, and marriage as well, of course. And I contrast that with dating culture in the church that I've been familiar with in, in my life. And while there are problems with our dating culture, um, of course it's not perfect, you know, women do have some power to, to induce men to enter into committed relationships with them and to, to get married. Um, and some of that, the power that they have comes from the norms. That we have around sexuality so in particular our norms enforced on both men and women that we don't have sex before marriage and so if a man tries to you know pressure a woman in the church into having sex with him she can say no because she knows that uh he can't just go to other women and expect to to get it from them in the church we also have norms uh against exogamy or dating outside of the faith especially for men i'd say uh which is good as well because that prevents men from from going elsewhere so it it gives women sort of a bargaining power in their relationships with with men and this is maybe an awkward way to think about relationships we we tend to avoid wanting to think about relationships this way but uh, we have to because the fact is that women have been disempowered by the sexual revolution in their relationships with men and that matters and it matters for for women's well-being and, and we see it show up in a lot of of ways
0: I remember hearing recently that the the data since the sexual revolution is very interesting, and that happiness for men and women has dropped. I, I couldn't cite a statistic, so
1: I apologize. So um, it's, but- it's the there's a uh, quite a well known paper from about ten years ago called the paradox of declining female happiness, and uh, men's happiness actually has has been pretty stable, but women's happiness has dropped in absolute terms and relative to men substantially through the seventies, eighties, nineties and of course they call it a paradox because this is coincided with you know in the mainstream narrative you know all kinds of great things for for women's rights and things and and a lot of good things have happened but the sexual revolution i would argue is an obvious cause of why of why women are, are less happy in in aggregate in developed countries
0: i think one of the things that you bring out and when you when you tell your story, your first story about the library conversation is how heartbreaking it is that she Th- this, this young woman is texting him and saying, hey, I thought we meant something. I thought there was something there. And he is there bragging, not to a bunch of other guys about how cringe he is, but to a bunch of other women about how meaningless this interaction is. Um, and contrasted, and I think I think that you made the case really well, it's, it's been interesting. I've heard a lot lately about how shame is always bad. And you know, any signal of stigma is always a bad thing, and that just seems to be, I don't know, not informed like not I don't think anybody believes that. If somebody says something, you know, if somebody kicks puppies, they should feel ashamed. That's a bad thing to do, right? We, I think we all agree on this. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is that we have different uh, beliefs about good and bad. and I think that's what we're really using as a proxy is like, well, shame is bad for the things that I don't think are wrong to begin with, right.. Um,
1: right. But you're yeah, in- absolutely. And I think go you know, ahead, go ahead. one example that that makes the point very clearly sometimes to people with people on the left more uh, is is racism. Like that's something that should be stigmatized and shamed. And, and no one really fails to see that. Um, so when it's something you really believe is wrong, it's and, and antisocial and destructive. It's easy to see why it should be stigmatized.
0: Well, and that's the example that I like to get. So in, in schools, we have a lot of these conversations about, um, you know, punishment is bad. You shouldn't punish kids and then i say okay well what if the kid's racist well yeah no you need to suspend them and i'm like so, well, hold on then like let's that's fine i'm not saying you're wrong but you you you're not actually arguing about what is good punishment you're mm-hmm. arguing that one thing just isn't a bad thing that if a student is getting raucous on the playground that it's not actually bad and i, th- I think we need to we can speak about this more clearly you also mentioned something that so the, the way that you turned the phrase was really interesting which was imagine having that conversation among um you know there's there's a a night at the church activity and there are three women and there's a guy there who's now bragging about the same exploits there is going to be stigma attached and it's going to protect other women from being taken advantage of in that social setting um and it's your writing is kind of it's, it's 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 I wouldn't say it's in your face but it's almost like it wakes you up to like oh yeah that's a good thing right it's not a bad thing that actually protects other people and can be a positive Megan, I can see that you're 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 waiting patiently to jump in. If I'm if I'm talking over you, you jump in. No,
2: no, not at all. Um, <laughs> um I wanted to ask, you know, just kind of lay a little bit of groundwork. Um do you think that there are what specific aspects of the sexual revolution do you think have penalized women? Like what's the the mechanism by which we're we're seeing this change dynamic?
1: Right. So I I think the sexual revolution was bad in a number of ways. Um, but the specific thing I'm thinking of is how in the mid sixties, over the course of really four or five years, it was very quick norms against premarital sex almost completely vanished in the United States. Uh, and it's not fully understood exactly how it happened and how it happened so quickly, but it did happen very quickly. Um, obviously it had something to do probably with new contraception technology, had something to do with mm-hmm. mass media and, and TV and, and things. But um, but that erosion of those specific norms um, just obliterated women's uh, bargaining power in the sexual or the dating marketplace. Uh, and, and specifically, that's um, so why I kind of alluded to it before, but uh, when, when women know that other women are willing to, to have sex, uh, without, you know, committed relationships, then it's very hard for them to demand it for men. Um, that's just a fact because men, uh, sex for men is cheaper. Uh, the benefits are higher in the in immediate, uh, in immediate, um, in the short run, and then the costs are lower, um, in the, you know, the expected costs are lower. So for men it's cheaper. And so in an unregulated sexual marketplace, men are going to have more power.
0: And so if i can jump in megan i'm going to be yeah. rude um and, and interrupt real quick i i am this conversation resonates with me because i have some understanding of economics and it's it's one of those things where once you see things through economic lenses it's very hard not to see them this, like you can't unsee it right um for men and women when, you, when you're talking about costs if a woman engages in sex and runs the risk of pregnancy that's simply something a man will never have And if you want to talk about like inherent bias or inherent sexism, like that's on the universe, but like it's there, right? And so because of that, I was talking recently to some students who were, you know, I I teach women, because I teach elementary education, which is primarily women at the school that I work at. It's like 95% women. And they were kind of bemoaning the lack of um, courtship, right? Courtship used to be a thing and it's not there anymore. Now, fortunately, the the kind of behavior you're describing is not present uh, at BYU-Idaho. But what they talked about is just that guys are dorks, and they don't, you know, they they kind of ghost people and just like like crummy behavior that just you know it's not it's not to the level you're describing. Um, And they kind of agreed together. Oh wow, I didn't realize courtship would have helped us. Courtship protects women. Courtship allows for a group of you know essentially for a group of women to say no, no, no. This is the standard we expect you to rise to, and if you're not going to, then we're not interested. Um, and I'm pairing that with a conversation with um, a, a friend of mine who's Jewish online, where she she was talking about the same thing, and again, very economic terms, she said it strikes me that courtship is essentially a cartel of women saying to men that you won't get what you're after unless you're willing to pay the price of a committed relationship, and it, it you know it needs to be at least we're we're going to be able to impose some costs on you, and then she made the observation, which I'm sure is incredibly impolitic um but that's part of why women treat other women really poorly if they break the code because they're effectively scabs right and, and and that you know that's i'm not saying that's justified i'm not saying that's okay but in terms of um economic behavior that's precisely what you would anticipate that's what you would predict in, in that kind of a marketplace
2: so i i guess for me um the question that comes to mind based on that is I can, I can hear um, somebody um, pushing back on this saying, isn't it sexist to assume that women are disproportionately um, penalized by a lack of commitment? Like perhaps women are socially conditioned to want commitment, but that part of feminism, part of the sexual revolution has been, we're freeing them from those social constraints. So isn't it the case that Um, it's not a man woman thing. It's just this particular girl wanted commitment. And this particular man did not.
1: Right. Um, yeah. And what's interesting is at least as far as I can tell, I could be wrong in my perceptions, but in the last few years, um, the conversation or or what I'm hearing from feminists has, has changed a little bit where they actually are more often now saying hold on casual sex actually is not working out for women like it's working out for men Uh, and we're not getting the same thing out of it as men are and so it's it's we're sort of moving away from what they used to call sex positive feminism and back towards what they used to call sex negative feminism in some respects and you see like i'm not sure if you've heard of this online group like female dating strategy um on reddit and elsewhere but it's sort of it seems like a reply to like the red pill sort of men's men's rights or men's um, uh, kind of movement where it's supposed to be this realist, like strategic, cynical kind of look at dating in, in female interests rather than male interests. And, you know, it seems like these women would all consider themselves feminist. but what's interesting is one of the things they are very firm on is do not uh, let a man pressure you into having sex, do not have sex outside a committed relationship, do not uh, move in with a man before you're married. Uh, he gains way more from that than you do and you lose your leverage. So as a matter of strategy, just don't do it. And, and that's what they've come to. And I think that's what, um, I think people are rediscovering sort of the virtues of, you know, what we used to have, Uh, these, these norms were there for a reason.
2: So maybe those norms that we've been dismantling, we're sort of discovering some of the reasons why they existed in the first place.
1: Yeah. And so. My reply, if someone said that, would be first, you know, go see what feminists are saying these days and why that you you see these articles like, you know, the feminist case against casual sex or whatever things like that, right?
0: And I don't think that that's to say. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, Tom, but that isn't to say that this always goes swimmingly, right? And there are individual women who want to deviate from that norm, and that's their choice, and they can you know live and let live. That's their choice. But I think I think that your your point that really resonates with me is. There's a difference in cost for men and women to engage in casual sex right it, it like looking at it if i can if i can be a little bit you know blunt looking at the sexual revolution going you know i think this really empowered women i think there are a lot of men in the background cackling going yeah 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 definitely them that's that's what we're doing this for like that it's just silly right when you mm-hmm. when you kind of take away the, the the blanket and go oh my goodness this is this is so obviously going to be worse for a lot of women now um this reminds me a little bit of Jordan Peterson who's kind of the right now at least in my mind is the king of maybe we're throwing some institutions um out the window and there's a lot more baby going out with bathwater. that doesn't mean that there aren't imperfections and that it is that it is enforced perfectly but it does mean that maybe we should slow down and investigate and I I guess I, I would argue I think some people will hear this conversation immediately jump right to oh that's just sexism and I think it's like maybe hit pause maybe maybe before you jump right to this is the worst thing ever because somebody disagrees with me they must be an evil conservative maybe let's talk this out as people who have different values and that's okay and if you want a different world and that's fine i'm not going to call you a horrible person but let's let's admit that we're coming from different starting points and that we can have the conversation
2: well and if i might just say too to something you know kind of to tom's point earlier um you know, of course we're not gonna demonize somebody who, you know, a woman who makes so-called sexually liberated choices, but at the same time, undermining the norms impacts all women. And I think that's why this is important to talk about because um, we are not islands, you know? And uh, we're starting to see that just, you know, that I like he said, the most powerful part of his story is the fact that women were enforcing this against each other. Um, so, so that, that has, uh, that does, that ma- that matters.
1: Yeah, it does. And, you know, I often think of this quote by James E. Faust, I, am going to say it wrong, but I think it's, uh, there are no completely private choices. And I think that's true. Uh, everything we do, you know, it's, it's hard to accept in our, in our very individualistic culture, but everything we do does affect other people. Even things we do in private affect other people, believe it or not, <laughs> because yeah. they affect us. And. And they affect uh, expectations and norms, and um, so we—we, we, you know, it's a big burden to think of you know the moral weight of everything we do. So we we can't think of every consequence of everything we do. But but the fact is, uh, when it comes to something like sex, the effects are are massive.
0: I have a dear friend who said, uh, and by the way, I, I lean pretty libertarian. I think it's it's got good policy and, and whatnot, but. Um, a good friend of mine just kind of cautioned me and said, yeah, libertarianism is great. It makes the assumption that all choices are completely private. And uh, I think that's kind of something that I'm learning in my grumpy old age now uh, is that, I think you're exactly right. I think that they affect norms, they affect you know normalizing different behaviors and how society views stuff. And that actually is really important for the kind of world that I want my kids to grow up in. Um, and so I, I think that that's, that's a valid point.
1: And just to, uh, to add to one point about why it's more expensive for women, um, there are many three things I'd, I'd point out. Um, and this is actually, this is something that they say on female dating strategy as well. Uh, cause after I wrote this, I went and looked and saw what they were saying, but, um, so men are pretty much guaranteed. I don't want to get too graphic, but in a sexual encounter, men get, you know, pleasure pretty much guaranteed. That's a pretty mechanical kind of thing, uh, for women, especially when it comes to casual sex, that's not the case. So already there's an imbalance there. Men are getting something out of it that women often usually don't get. And then, uh, costs there's pregnancy, of course, uh, that's a big one. Even if you're using contraception, there's always that chance. And then also STDs women are for most STDs just for physiological reasons are at more risk, uh, of contracting most, uh most, uh, STDs or STIs. And so it, it really is, you know, and the fact that we don't acknowledge that, um, we talk about just getting rid of all the norms, just leveling the playing field. But the fact is we have to take into account these, these baseline differences and it's, it's in men's interest not to take them account into account. Um, and so, you know, someone once was described, I'm trying to, I don't remember where, but described the sexual revelation as just having made male sexual preferences normative and i think that is that is basically what it was
2: yeah i i love that description and i know um um you know i don't really have any data but (laughs) it just has always seemed patently dishonest to try to claim that women are not psychologically and emotionally different than men and in, in, when it comes to sex and dating that they are, um, disproportionately hurt with casual encounters, um, women, I think do, uh, more naturally crave, um, commitment and emotional exclusivity. So again, I, I don't have any like hard data, but I, I don't think that that makes it less of a valid observation. And I think that a lot of the narratives that we see are trying to bury what was common sense for most of human history, which is that marriage largely protects women.
0: Well, and I'll add to the thing that you said about things I don't have data on, but I suspect are true. I'm willing to bet that sexual violence is very different between men and women too. And that that's another area in which women fare a a good deal worse than men do. Um, And it's the kind of thing where you know in my mind this is this is the kind of thing that just makes sense um but i i've never understood that you mentioned too and i I wanted to bring this up megan you mentioned what about those women who just don't want commitment and i would say that's fine that's their choice right i don't agree with it and i want to be clear i am not neutral but i also think we're in a grown-up society and people have the right to choose their choices what bothers me is when there's an implication that i'm speaking on behalf of women when in fact i think that's what some feminists are actually doing and they're actually saying, "Well, no, 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 women don't want commitment," and it's like, "Well, no, actually, a lot do, right?" Like that's a silly thing to say. And I'm not judging if somebody doesn't. If somebody is just willing, you know, they want to live their life, that's that's their deal. But to kind of uniformly, and I think Jordan Peterson has started making this case, probably a little stronger than I would. I don't, I don't think, you know, he he's he started to say I, most women actually want to have kids, and he's very, very strong about that. To which my, I, I don't think that it needs to be most women. It can be even a few women but if that is their preference then the change in norms affects them disproportionately and it's okay to talk about that without
1: being labeled sexist really really fast Um, actually for the first time in history in the last decade or so women's ideal or preferred fertility the number of kids they report that they want to have in their lifetime is lower than achieved fertility quite a bit lower so whatever it is about our system is making it so that women are having fewer kids on average than they want to in their life for the first time.
0: So let me let me make sure that I understood that statistic. You're saying that for the first time now, women are are having fewer kids than they want.
1: Yeah, our our fertility total fertility rate is something like 1.6, historically low. Yeah, that's in the US. And uh desired fertility is something like, I don't remember exactly, but I want to say 2.4, something like that. Um, so most women want two or three kids on average um
0: but they're not having as many as they they wish they could yeah all right well i have a couple of questions megan did you have another one that you wanted to go for you go first so here's let me start with um this idea of patriarchy because there's something deep within me um and it's probably all just you know deep deeply sexist ideas about the world and all of that stuff um i intend to teach my sons uh really clearly that uh sexual ethics are important and that they're going to treat women with respect and that's that's a pretty patriarchal kind of a system um and i don't know much but i know that patriarchy is bad right uh and that that all you know all of those things i want to teach my kids really carefully and really thoughtfully i also want to make sure that i'm doing you know i i I hope i'm not sounding like i'm lampooning the left as i talk about this I, i try to grapple with this stuff earnestly um and yet in my mind, I look at this and go, yeah, I'm going to teach my daughter to be safe, and I'm going to teach my sons to be good, decent men. I think that that's a good message. I think that's something that everybody agrees on. I would hope that it is. But that's still dad coming in and telling everybody what to do. That's still patriarchy. Like, I think that there's there's this there's this uh, CDC article that, that I share with my students in class. It's all about father involvement right and as it turns out it leads to all sorts of positive impacts right like you have lower rates of teen pregnancy you have lower rates of like all sorts of stuff just just by the the dad being involved um so i guess i guess what i'm asking is is that is that like non-toxic patriarchy is that like healthy patriarchy even like benevolent patriarchy like what what is the goal and what should i be trying to teach my kids about this
1: um megan i'm turning over to you first because i think we briefly talked about this so yeah i
2: I, I am, I'm actually, that's the next thing I was going to ask you about. So, um, I kind of had a a sort of knee jerk reaction to the word patriarchy. And I, I kind of, um, asked you about it and you pointed me towards a, a wonderful article, um, that was written by a woman who sort of supports patriarchy because it Consists in something that I hadn't really considered, which is uh, like authority, like men, good men policing um, younger men, and that 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 there's nothing inherently evil about a system like that. So I wanted to hear you talk about that because it seems like that maybe informs a little bit of of why you intentionally use a word like patriarchy.
1: Right. Yeah. So so that article, I think she wrote it in. So her name is Lucinda Hancock. She wrote this blog post on. Millennial Star, uh, a Latter-day Saint blog, uh, I think in 2015 or 2016, and the title is Paradoxical Patriarchy. And I read it uh, when it came out and I I don't wanna overstate it, but it changed my life. It really changed the way that I see the world. Um, And anyone who's watching, just feel free to pause and go read that blog post. Just search Paradoxical Patriarchy Lucinda Hancock because uh, it's, I think you'd agree, it's very, uh, one of the clearest pieces of writing you know you can find on the internet uh, and just packed with fascinating insights um i'm a woman re- who
2: i think has like eight eight kids or something
1: yeah i think <laughs> i think in a later blog post she says she has nine so wow yeah <laughs> but um but her so what she says in the post she starts off by observing that feminism has sort of failed to protect women from unscrupulous men and I would add the sexual revolution as well. Cause often I think those two things get conflated and they're related, but they're not the same thing, but it's failed to protect women. And, uh, in some ways it's even made it worse for reasons similar to what I said in my, my uh, blog post. And so she was thinking about what is the solution? What do we do about this problem of unscrupulous men, men who are trying to evade the responsibilities of fatherhood um who are a threat to civilization uh what do we do That's about
2: powerful language a threat to civilization
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely it's it's almost like the the oldest and most persistent sociological problem is is what to do about men who whose inclinations would just be to go and take advantage of women and you know spread their seed around so to speak and evade the responsibilities of fatherhood
0: i believe the preferred term is menace to society right yeah yes.
1: <laughs> there's that apocryphal quote from brigham young uh, <laughs> that that single men or single men over a certain age are a menace to society and it doesn't mean that you know i've been a single man i got married when i was 25 but uh it's not that you're a bad person it's just that you know men need structure uh you know, we need to be civilized in a way we we are we do best when we have expectations put upon us and we uh, have to live up to those expectations. Men need duties and responsibilities. Um, that's what gives our lives meaning, and, and we need to channel our, our energy into those. So what and she it, argues is.
2: Go ahead. No, I, I just along with that, it seems like it kind of seems like it's important that that is also that comes from men. So it can't just be women policing men.
1: Right, yeah. So what she says is her solution that she came up with was paradoxically patriarchy. And mm-hmm. specifically, uh, it's it's older married men, particularly fathers, hence the word patriarchy, mm-hmm. who have proven, um, you know, their commitment and, the, and their they have good values and all this sort of thing, policing young men uh, and, and making the world safe for, you know, civilization and protecting uh, women and children. Because um, the fact is, um, women as a matter of, of physical fact can't really please men at, at scale um you know, i read this book by francis fukuyama famous political philosopher uh origins of political order and then towards the beginning he says that there's no civilization we we know of in history uh in which uh, in which it wasn't patriarchal there's no matriarchal system we're aware of in history we, there are some matrilineal societies where you know lineage is determined through mothers and things but there's no as far as you know, there has there's never been a matriarchal civilization at any scale, and so it, it sort of rule by men is, is sort of a fact of of nature, fortunately or unfortunately or whatever. But uh, patriarchy, at least in the way Lucinda Hancock is defining it, is rule by fathers, um, and the the danger of it is it it can easily decay. It, it can be captured by unscrupulous men, you no know, men who just want power and ambition and want to take advantage of women and and they can use their power to abuse and and uh, and hurt women. And that has happened many times throughout history. I think it's happening right now. I think we live, I think one thing I agree with feminists about is we live in a patriarchal society in the sense that men yes. are Yes, I was running just gonna show. say
2: that. That seems like that's exactly what's happening. Um, is is it's a rule by men. Only women are <laughs> paradoxically less, <laughs> they have less say and less control over things than they well, do.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just it's been captured by men who, you know, like to evade the responsibilities of fatherhood. And uh, you know, the people who make well, I won't get into into too much of that, but but I agree what I was saying was I agree that, you know, we live in a society that's mostly run by men and that this society is mostly bad for women. Um but what I do think is that there is a better form of patriarchy that is viable that, you know. Uh, we see it, you know, in a smaller scale in the church, where um, you know, I think it's a good thing that we have bishops that keep an eye on our our YSA men, you know, and interview them and and subject them to uh, to consequences if they if they go out of line. You know, let's take one example um, that we have intact families and fathers where fathers instruct their, their sons and their daughters in in you know the right way to behave around the opposite sex, and this is what we expect, and and we enforce our norms uh of premarital sex on both men and women Um, you know one one form of pushback i got on my post was you can't expect women it's wrong to expect women to be gatekeepers of sex Um, but i think both sexes should gatekeep sex it's just that women benefit more from a a situation where we're gatekeeping gatekeeping sex
0: well but also this this seems like it's a little bit of darned if you do darned if you don't no you can't you can't have a (laughs) patriarchal system where men are policing other men that's super sexist we also don't think it's fair that women be the only gatekeepers i mean really we need to have it not just be women and it's like oh fundamentally behind all of it it's just that people don't like having sexual ethics like this is all it is and it's like okay that's fine but like should i i think that you made the point really well We do actually live in a society that is very very heavily heavily run by men it's just a very corrupt patriarchy right at the end of the day so and let me put it even a little bit differently most of the issues that come up when you know people talk to me about feminism i'm like yeah i think i'm you know probably broadly feminist i think that's that's probably a a broadly fair term i don't really associate myself with them politically and i've never rallied with them but you know women should vote and i you know i like the idea of making things better for them in the workplace and when somebody tells me about a sexist incident i I get really mad no problem with any of those i still don't feel super comfortable with uh, you know a conversation around feminism in part because mostly what we're talking about actually at the end of the day is sexual ethics and i think most of those sexual ethics are actually just things i don't agree with i don't think that they're good in a utilitarian sense i don't think they're good morally right i don't think they work out well for women um and yet very quickly it's like well you're just a sexist it's like or well, maybe we could dig a little bit deeper but you know whatever you know to each their own yeah
1: And that's why i like i like talking about the sexual revolution uh in context where i think others have talked about feminism because i think it's it's more the phenomenon that's um that explains a lot of what's going on and because yeah for the same reasons you just said uh because i i agree with feminists on a lot of uh of things like i agree that men should take responsibility for other men's you know police each other and then sort of thing, which a lot of feminists say, I think. Um, but yeah, as you say, the, the disagreement comes down to sexual ethics and somehow, uh, the sex positive feminists won with a lot of help from, you know, Hugh Hefner and lots of men who are unscrupulous, um, which is unfortunate because it's really bad for women. Uh, so it's, it's, it's too bad, but I think maybe there's some realization now, as I was saying earlier that, you know, from, from feminists that yeah, the the status quo has not been working.
0: Let me ask you another question. Um, I've got two more, and I'll try and make them quick because I, I don't want to. I don't want to let this get too long. Um, let's imagine a society in which you know what we're talking about here rules the day. Is this the kind of seed that that eventually will yield the fruit of um, your damaged goods if you ever make a sexual mistake? Is that is that the downside to having strict norms of enforcement, um, where you're going to get shame messages and you're going to uh make people feel bad if they ever make a mistake and there's there's not a lot of grace and they're just you know they're feeling really beat up because this now now there's this norm we've we've gotten that norm back but the norm is enforced in such a way that if anybody deviates from the norm um it's scarlet letter time and it's you know it's it's all of that kind of stuff
1: yeah i mean the short answer is uh norms uh and social costs they it is sort of uh in, in some respects it's trading the, the well-being of the group uh against the well-being of the individual and it is hard to be on the receiving end of stigma whether you know um but but as you know, going back to what you said earlier um uh, you know we all believe in stigma for things that we really believe are, are antisocial and destructive and so again i think it comes down to a question of do we really believe that it's that it's right or wrong um but, uh, but, you know, if, when you say to imagine that we have this kind of society we're describing, I think, I think the closest we get is within the church. Um, and I, I don't see a lot of that attitude. I, I mean, I, maybe I just haven't seen it, but, you know, uh, and, and, and honestly, I think, because I, I, I hear stories like on the internet, people saying, I, I, I was taught, you know, the, the chewed gum analogy or something, or the light cupcake. I, I never heard that, um, as far as I know, my I sisters that. didn't, sisters didn't either my, my wife hasn't, um, maybe it's, I, I, I don't know, maybe it happened at one point in certain parts of the church or something. I'm not sure, but, uh, I, you know, I hope we don't do that. Cause that, that wasn't my point with the, the blog post at all. You know, I, when I, my, my feeling towards the woman, the girl that the, the, the boy at the beginning in the story was describing the girl who was texting him was just compassion i just felt felt so bad that she clearly had been pressured into this situation she didn't want to you know she didn't want to have sex with this guy probably he pressured her into it she wanted to keep him so she relented because she thought that was the only way to keep him but of course he just left her anyway and he didn't care and she was heartbroken because she had these feelings for him understandably because she's a human being well and so so, i
2: I mean to you know You were asking about the shame mentality, Benjamin, and I, I, see a lot of shame in the story that Tom related in his blog post. Um, unfortunately it's, it's leveled at the girl who, who, um, y- y- was texting this guy. And so I, I think there is always danger of enforcement of norms, like people relying on shame to enforce norms, but that's exactly what was happening in the story that he related, there is a norm, it's an unspoken one. It's one that embraces the individual supposedly, but, but that, that norm, I mean, those, those girls are, um, you know, kind of making fun of this other girl and, and added to that is, is whatever pain she's suffering as a result of, of, um, you know, this guy kind of ditching her. So it's not like there's there was less pain and less shame in this equation because of um celebrating the individual um i think it just took a slightly different form
0: i think that's an
1: excellent that's a great point, point.
0: i think yeah. that's an excellent point point. And, and i would add too if you're going to have strong norms and by the way this is something that is deep in me like this is perhaps one of the deepest part of parts of who i am high expectations and strong norms build better people they build better societies they You know, All of the parenting research says that if you have a choice between authoritative, authoritarian, and neglectful, that authoritative parents do the best by kids. And by the way, it's the same for teachers, right? If you have high expectations and high warmth and high love, those are the teachers that make the biggest difference for kids bar none, no questions asked. Mm -hmm. There's a group of people that always seem to want to be lowering expectations because they're uncomfortable. When instead, I think that the answer, and this is something that we might have talked about once or twice in church, something called atonement and grace and repentance and fixing things now now to your point tom anybody out there who's listening i'm sure that someone out there has heard the chewed gum analogy i hope nobody ever does that again because it sends the wrong message it sends the message that there are things that are it that are permanently and irretrievable, unfixable um right. and that's just not our doctrine that's not what we believe at the same time we also have a doctrine that grace is not cheap and it isn't cheap for any of us no matter what our mistakes are right and that's because it's not because God is interested in you know exacting a price. It's because we believe in a grace that is meaningful and that keeps us as safe as possible, that some of these norms and fences actually protect us from getting harmed or, 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 or something like that. Let me ask my last question, and this one is one that um, I thought about recently um, a good deal. Uh, the woman taken in adultery. This is a, a very obvious thing for me to, to think. There was a man involved uh and whoever found her caught in the act probably found him caught in the act but they didn't bring him um is there is there a chance that what ends up happening over time is that a a corrupt patriarchal system is going to take it out on the woman and i i will be honest i i I am very pro-life and yet i see this a lot in conversations about abortion where a woman is particularly reprehensible but the man involved is essentially off scot-free right um and and i will stipulate that i think that courtship and sexual norms and all of these things in part are built to protect against that to try to equalize some of these costs Um, but is there is there a possibility that what this ends up leading to is kind of a a one-sided enforcement of you know wicked patriarchy enforcing the norms on women and kind of letting men off the hook and saying well boys will be boys
1: yeah there is a risk of that um the woman caught in adultery, like you said, it, the law in, in, in Leviticus or Deuteronomy is that you stone both a man and a woman. Um, but of course they just brought the the woman. And you wonder if maybe that's why Jesus was already so dismissive is because they were, they were already breaking their own law and uh, and then expecting him to, to do their, their work for them, uh, to do the dirty work for them. But, um, but yeah, I think that, that is, and I think that's an example of, of corruption right there is that they, decided to let the the man go and, and bring the woman, um, and uh, and Lucinda Hackock talks about this in her article. There, you know, unfortunately in in history we see this in the scriptures. We see these cycles where, people are righteous and then this righteousness righteousness leads to prosperity and this prosperity leads to, corruption and wickedness which leads to. You know humility and despair um and i don't know how you break out of that but but i think that's what we see we've we benefited so much from I mean, we, if you know we we look at, at north america so i'm canadian you guys are american but we inherited this you know this rich continent and we, we have freedoms and uh you know we, we had a christian background and all these these great things that we had forebears who did so much for us we've benefited so much and now we've been so prosperous that we've just sort of <laughs> spent all our cultural capital and just have wasted away our inheritance. And now we, we see the corruption and the, the problems and it, you know, our civilization is in decline, I think. And, uh, I don't know how you reverse that exactly. Uh, I, but, but the answer is yes, it's, it's of course vulnerable, but of course, I don't know what the alternative is. If, like I said, I think, um, you know, men sort of having political power is is sort of a fact of of human existence, and the alternative is is effectively uh, anarchy, uh, in a pre sort of pre-agricultural world where where you know the dominant male just uh, collects keeps women, controls women, and then there are lots of men who just anyway, but. Uh, so I guess, yeah, my answer is, is yes. And I wish I had a better, a better answer of, uh, of what can be done about it. One thing
2: I will say that, um, in that, that article, um, by Lucinda Hancock, you know, she, she talks kind of like almost, um, she doesn't say exactly in these words, but patriarchy, if done correctly, is almost a process by which the leaders are vetted according to the commitment and responsibility that they've developed. Because if it's ruled by fathers, presumably it's ruled by good fathers. It's, it's ruled by the kinds of fathers that keep the society safe and intact and that, um, protect all of the members of the society. Otherwise, um, you know, the, this, well, anyway, I won't go into that. But I, I, I think that, um, thinking of it, not in terms of just led by males, but specifically led by males who have demonstrated the kinds of virtues Goodness,
0: yeah. that
2: we believe make for good leaders is is sort of what she's talking about
1: that's interesting oh yeah absolutely. absolutely yeah that's and, go and, ahead Tom and, sorry um yeah so to be clear when I'm talking about patriarchy and good patriarchy I mean rule by good fathers who have demonstrated virtue and that sort of thing and you look at the church and the way it's structured and our our male leaders uh at the general level and at the local level are married men and you know all the apostles have have kids and grandkids and that's not an accident. Um, our women leaders don't have to be married or have kids, uh, but for men, you know, we do. We do vet them, and these we need men who are going to who we can trust to hold to the rod and you know keep the men in good shape and and protect what we have. And I think I guess actually maybe that that is part of an answer to to the question is. Um, Yes, it can de- degenerate, but you know, look at the church's structure. I think it's built to sort of maintain, as much as possible, this you know healthy, virtuous kind of patriarchy. And I don't even care if it's called patriarchy, but you know, just a system where fathers are are taking responsibility for, for you know, for keeping uh, everything in line.
0: It's so interesting that you say that. So Jordan Peterson talks a lot about dominance hierarchies. And that's how, where the whole lobster thing comes from. It's kind of entertaining to me. But his whole point is that competence hierarchies are actually what's really important, right? That you're rising to the top because you're actually good at something. And that those are really, really important for a society. And as he also mentions, and I think that this is obviously true, um, competence hierarchies are imperfect by their nature. Sometimes people climb to the top because they're corrupt and they're better at climbing the hierarchy than they are at actually being competent at actually being good. And yet, what you would want to have is a moral competence hierarchy in society. You would want to have a hierarchy where people climb to the top by being decent people, by being good, and by being helpful, and by serving others, and also by like running things in their own domain well, right? And I don't, I don't mean to imply that um, men run the house and, and need to tell their their kids and their wife what to do. Not at all. But I do think that there's something for being set, to, to be said for if you were able to run your your own home in, in, and take your responsibilities well and make sure your children are provided for, that's a mark of an important piece of character. Um, and saying that is not actually the, you know, that, that's not an anti-feminist burn. That's actually just a really important part of, of I think this, this idea of a moral you know hierarchy of competence. The other thing that I wanna say, and maybe this is the note we can end on is, when I think about the things that make me feel most like a man, right? It's not lifting weights or cursing when I, you know, stub my toe or you know fixing things, right? There are things like providing for my family, um, teaching my children, um, teaching my my young sons about sex and about like how to protect themselves and how to be decent men. These are things that are like very very deep to me about what it means to be a father and to be a man. That I think are something that we should take pride in. I, I recently saw um, somebody was shooting around ideas online, and they said, "Hey, maybe instead of toxic masculinity, instead of focusing on the masculinity part, maybe we should flip toxic to heroic." And so I asked a student, I said, "What would you define as heroic masculinity?" And and this is a you know a fairly you know you know center left student who's who's very you know savvy politically and and leans a little bit feminist. And she looked at me, she says, "Oh, that's easy. It's it's Aragorn." I said, Aragorn, really? That's what you're doing? You're like an enlightened feminist, you know, icon person here. And she was like, No, it's absolutely Aragorn. He's got his stuff together. He's good looking. And like, look at that, you know, he fights orcs and stuff. I I think that it's okay to say that there is such a thing as good manliness. And that part of that is saying is raising your sons to be good men. Um, And that
2: women care about it. And it's okay for us as a society to um, teach women to value good aspects of masculinity
0: absolutely and that that doesn't mean that my wife isn't involved in teaching my kids about sex or or enforcing norms or helping me to you know when i say run our house that's something that we do together as equal partners but that the idea here that's really deep is like that's okay to want to do that there's something deeply fulfilling to me about doing these things about about climbing that hierarchy of moral competence where i want to be a decent person and that's not something to be embarrassed about right that's something to to laud and to, to be excited for. Well, any last thoughts really quick before we wrap up that are burning a hole in your pocket?
1: Just make sure, uh, to go read Paradoxical Patriarchy <laughs> by Lisa Hancock. I really <laughs> do recommend it. Like I said, it changed my life. It's a great.
0: Well, uh, and also yeah. subscribe to Tom Stringham's, uh, sub stack. Cause you're, if you want yeah, if you're into you're that, you're two for two. The opinions <laughs> expressed on radical civility are only the opinions of the participants and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or their faith or their former pet's owner uh or they even themselves when they're older and wiser god bless everybody go do some good in the world